This is a Brick House production. Thank you for listening. podcast my name is Aaron Brickhouse your host as always and this is episode two so amidst the craziness and the crisis of the past two years you have a lot of people you know we're talking about great recessions people leaving jobs people finding new jobs and there's this debate that's gotten brought up again about the wage and how people should be paid so today on this episode of the podcast on episode two of the podcast and uh, thank you all for joining me here by the way We are talking about a living wage. So what exactly is this? What is a living wage? Because it is a term that gets thrown around a lot in political discourse. And I got to thinking, more often than not, it does get thrown around uh, interchangeably as if this and the living wage are the same thing. And don't take this personally uh, to my listeners, but um, for those of you who might be fans of Bernie Sanders... Um, Senator Sanders likes to do this. In fact, he has a really well-known uh, speech, you can probably find it on YouTube, where he gets up there on stage and he says, uh, the minimum wage is not a livable wage, and therefore, uh, the minimum wage needs to be raised to $15, so it becomes a living wage. Um, so that's a that's a really quick bait-and-switch. Um, and other politicians, such as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, well, misguided, I appreciate her um, ambition, and what she sees uh, as the problems in the system. Uh, I don't always agree with her, but I think her and people like Senator Sanders, uh, like many populists on the left and the right, they recognize a problem with the system. They're just a little bit extreme. Um, And there's a little bit more to the problem than that. So what is a living wage? So I went and I looked this up and I've been doing the research on this for the past couple weeks. And it turns out that living wage is a little bit complicated. Um, first off, it is not the same as the minimum wage. The minimum wage has been around for uh, probably close to 100 years, or at least the, um, the implementation of it. And it's been implemented in various, uh, different cases throughout history. Uh, sometimes it's implemented, implemented by the federal government. Sometimes it's implemented by state governments. Um, and it, it varies from region to region. Uh, here's the problem. Federal minimum wage of 725, uh, was almost outdated when it was, uh, since its inception in 2009, it was almost immediately outdated. And prior to 2009, the minimum wage on a federal level and uh, even some places uh, in the states, in local governments and state governments, where governments were implementing their own minimum wage, and they still do, um, there are a lot of places in the country right now where the the state minimum wage uh, far outpaces the federal minimum wage. And that's a whole nother conversation. And the minimum wage is a complicated enough topic that it is going to deserve its own episode. Heck, it might even deserve multiple episodes. And depending on how well I cover this topic, we might need multiple episodes to cover this one. So, living wage. To begin, it's not the same as the minimum wage. Uh, There's also two other terms which get thrown into this discourse, and one of those is uh, subsistence wage and family wage. So, the minimum wage is defined as, legally speaking, it is the minimum amount that uh, is regulated to pay a worker by law. There's the subsistence wage, which is the lowest, uh, wage that a person can actually live on, 
there is the family wage, which is kind of an offshoot of the concept of the living wage, which would be a wage in which uh, a couple, like two spouses, could support themselves and a child or two. And then there is the living wage. So the living wage as a concept has actually been around for a very long time. A lot of people on the political right, because the political left just throws this around a lot, um, interchangeably with the minimum wage. So when somebody who is fairly young, I mean, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is probably not even that much older than I am. And when the young person like her throws around a lot, you have a lot of people in the older generation, um, even on the left side of the political spectrum, some moderates, um, people in the center, people on the right, they just think that, uh, oh, she's just a young woman who doesn't have the experience of life. She doesn't know what she's talking about. And in, in this case, I would agree, but it's, it's not quite that straightforward. This bait and switch of the living wage and the minimum wage is frustrating because as far as the living wage goes, a lot of people have a very hard time defining it. What makes it even more complicated is that a lot of advocates of the living wage as a concept from an economic standpoint are typically against government intervention and minimum wage laws or government intervention in wage laws and minimum wage laws. And there's a reason for that. And like I said, the minimum wage is a complicated enough topic itself where I'm probably going to have to make a whole episode out, out of it on its own. So it seems like the difficulty of people who advocate for the concept of the living wage, not the people who use it interchangeably, like a lot of the democratic socialists in America, uh, use these two things interchangeably. A lot of advocates from an economic standpoint of a living wage typically are talking about it from a much different perspective and, as I said, are typically against minimum wage laws. The issue seems to be in defining exactly what living wage is. So, living wage is difficult to find because it is subjective. The needs of a person or two people or a family is increasingly subjective. Advocates in the UK and New Zealand, specifically, Advocate groups in those two countries claim that an individual working 40 hours a week with zero additional money should be able to afford basic needs for a modest but decent life. So what do they mean when they say that? They define this as food, shelter, utilities, health care, transport, and child care. In a lot of mixed economies in Europe, and I'm not saying socialist economies because they're not, they are mixed economies with well-implemented socialized policies and a form of the free market. America has a form of the free market and terribly implemented socialized policies, mostly because they've been implemented poorly by the federal government. And the federal government in America is so bloated and it has its reach in so many things that when the federal government does anything, it, it has far too great an effect on the market. And there isn't enough separation between these two things. From what I just defined from advocates of this in the UK and New Zealand, that seems pretty reasonable, right? As Even as reasonable as it seems, nobody seems to be able to understand how to properly implement these things, especially here in the US, because again, the minimum wage gets thrown into the debate and complicates it, and then they get used interchangeably, and nobody seems to want to define terms. So the modern concept of the living wage in America uh, emerged out of Reaganomics. So when President Reagan was in office, when Margaret Thatcher was in office in the UK, it's a neoliberal concept and it is a concept uh, heavily rooted in Keynesian, the Keynesian school of economic thought and economic thought and the schools of economic thought are again, another complicated topic I will probably have to make whole episodes on. The concept may seem new, but believe it or not, the this idea goes as far back uh, to the fourth century BC. I mean, philosophers like Plato and Aristotle 
we're talking about an income that should take into consideration and ensure the good of the community as a whole. Aristotle, in fact, and I said, and I quote, that which on its own makes life worthy of choice and lacking in nothing, unquote. This is not actually a new concept. The concept of allowing workers a wage in which they can live on, which the minimum wage is not in its present form, it hasn't always been that way. In fact, the minimum wage has outpaced inflation up until the federal minimum wage in 2009. And again, that's why. Why did that happen? I don't really know. There is a, that's probably why this, the minimum wage needs a whole episode to itself. But this is not a new concept. Um, as much as I don't necessarily agree with every person on the left, especially those who consider themselves democratic socialists, though even that is a term that isn't properly defined, I actually just met a very reasonable, uh, awesome individual who considers herself a democratic socialist the other day. And she was not this caricature that is made out uh, that, you know, the right likes to make out as people who consider themselves democratic socialists because she doesn't even agree with other people who label themselves as such, which to me is, it gives me hope because that means people are thinking outside of their preconceived notions and trying to not necessarily be put in a box. And we had a great conversation despite not necessarily uh, agreeing on everything. It was a fantastic interaction. It was, uh, it was a new relationship formed. And that gives me hope that more people, regardless of where you stand politically, economically, socially, or culturally, that more people will be able to better understand their own ideas and beliefs as, you know, as we progress forward into the future. That's one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast. Again, not a new idea. A lot of people on the right, and despite the fact that I am more right-leading, a lot of people on the right, this is not fair. Everybody needs to define terms. We always need to define terms when having discussions like this. I don't like it when... Uh, buzzwords are just thrown around or buzz terms are just thrown around and they're not properly defined. The right likes to do this. They like to say, well, you know, why does the minimum wage need to be $15? Well, they're talking about a living wage. And despite the fact that the left uses the minimum wage and the living wage interchangeably, the right does the exact same thing when they criticize the left talking about living wages. And they're like, oh, it's a new idea. It's a newfangled idea. It's not a newfangled idea. It's actually been around for a very long time. In fact, the modern concept of this idea the idea of a living wage goes back to the 4th century BC. St. Thomas of Aquinas of the Christian faith argued for what he called a just wage in the 13th century from a moral perspective. And Adam Smith, the same Adam Smith that is the father of the free market and the father of capitalism, also argued for a living wage. In fact, he thought it was essential for the free market to work correctly. To quote him loosely, uh, he said that a living wage improved the circumstances of the lower ranks of people in society. And that's a quote from The Wealth of Nations itself, which is the work he's most well known for. I mean, Pope Leo XIII uh, in 1891 said that wages should be enough to support a family. The modern concept politically that I'm talking about in this episode and the concept that a lot of advocates in the modern day like to use comes from a Catholic scholar, John Augustine Ryan. Uh, much of the modern thought about this concept comes from him, and he argued that it was a right from a moral perspective, not an economic perspective, funny enough. It's hard because this is a this is a concept that is both political, uh, cultural, and economic. So it's hard to argue it from one perspective or the other. Anyway, now another, uh, another thinker that came after him was actually Jerome Walton, who wrote The Case for a Living Wage, and he based much of his works in this book on the thoughts and ideas of Ryan. Their ideas came from a concept known as civic republicanism. 
funny enough, the living wage comes from a Republican idea. And not Republican in the modern sense, not neo-Republicanism. Uh, we're not talking about the elephants on Capitol Hill. We're talking a different uh, concept. Civic Republicanism is actually a left side of the political spectrum concept because it is related to liberalism or classic liberalism, funny enough. Um, but it, this idea came out of the Renaissance and it was derived from the writings of Aristotle, Polybius, and Cicero. Civic Republicanism is more of a concept. It is not a political ideology per se. Civic Republicanism was a concept that could be applied to a civic or political or cultural system. So you could re apply civic republicanism, uh, its idea and its practices to whatever political system you desired, uh, regardless of whether it was cohesive with the political system you applied it to is a whole nother discussion. So it comes out of that. And to uh, further emphasize on this, I don't like this idea when it comes to living wages and minimum wages, that there is this false dichotomy between, um, you know, in America, the political discourse is Lazi's fair capitalism or socialism. I feel like that's a really false dichotomy. Like Americans, when considering economic thought, those are our only two options. As if some of the most successful economies in the world are either of those things, which the most successful economies on earth on the planet Earth right now are all mixed economies with some form of well-implemented socialized policies and a free market. And when I say that, that's going to make a lot of people upset. It's going to make people on the right side of the book. Well, you can't talk about socialized systems. Look at the socialized systems in America. They've been a, a detriment to the working class and they're, they strain us in our taxes and they're going to people who don't want to work. And sometimes that is the case. And yeah, a lot of the socialized policies that the American government has put into place are awful and ineffective and incredibly outdated. And yes, we need reform on those things. But they're not necessarily not a step in the right direction. They're poorly implemented by narcissistic bureaucrats who think they have the answers to everything when they're so out of touch with the common people, uh, the common American citizen, that it's a little bit ridiculous. And a lot of people on the left might get upset with me for talking about, you know, the free market. Well, you can't say that Sweden or Denmark or New Zealand or any of the, the Nordic or Icelandic countries are free market, but they're actually in large part, they actually in large part have a fairly unregulated market. Their min a lot of their markets are minimally not completely, minimally unregulated by the government, and their economies, despite higher tax rates, are overall more healthy than ours. Related to this, I mean, if you go to work at a McDonald's in Denmark, the starting pay is, I think it's Denmark, and don't quote me on that because I could be wrong. I did a lot of research in, uh, for this episode, and a lot of it blends together, but a McDonald's worker, not a manager, a starting entry-level worker starts anywhere between $21 and $24 an hour with full benefits, paid vacation, and paid family leave. And you want to know how much extra their Big Mac is. And I'm not, a, I'm not I know that's, a, you know, a lot of people are, they think it's a little bit funny to be using a Big Mac as an example for um, properly implemented uh, wage policy, but their Big Macs are only 50 cents more than the American Big Mac. So why are American McDonald's workers paid like garbage? In fact, only recently paid close to 
maybe $15 an hour. And yet, they don't get any of the benefits that a McDonald's worker in another country does. So why is that? Uh, government, proper government and market implementation and policy, or effective government implementation and uh, market cooperation, would be my guess. And I think it is due in part because I, I am an individual for smaller government. My arguments against uh, a lot of the inefficiency of the minimum wage is due in part, I think, to the fact that the government, especially the American federal government, is so, it's got its hands in so many parts of the private uh, sector. There's so much argumentation right now uh, as we're currently experiencing the conflict, the conflict between Ukraine and Russia. And there's a lot of um, going back and forth about why the gas prices are so high. Well, even if we did not receive the majority of our oil from the country that is threatening to start World War III and nuclear war right now, domestically speaking, while the, gover while the government and the president may not define the price of oil, and it really does have in some part to do with supply and demand, when the government does something, it affects the market drastically in America. Okay, I shouldn't say drastically. Sometimes it does. And this is the fear with a lot of the more right-leaning uh, people with their fears about raising the minimum wage rather than implementing a separate wage policy or allowing the market to do some of the things that it's supposed to do naturally is they are worried when you increase the minimum wage to $15, you will cause the price of everything else to go up. And while that is theoretical, it is a possibility from an economic perspective, specifically because of how uh, the private sector and the public sector have are kind of butting heads with each other, in this country at least. But that's the difference. That's why... A Denmark McDonald's worker can receive $24 an hour starting, and the cost of a Big Mac over there is only 50 cents more than our Big Mac because their system and their policy and the way that their market and economy work are different than ours. You couldn't just do that here. You couldn't just start paying McDonald's workers 20 something dollars an hour without some profound economic ramifications. Some might be positive, but there might be some negative that comes along with that. So there's not a straightforward solution to this. And I mean, even then, if the minimum wage had kept up with the cost of inflation and the cost of living as it did for almost 75 to 80 years up until 2009, when the federal minimum wage stopped at 7.25 an hour, and hasn't increased in almost, well, upwards of 10 years, 15 years, close to two decades at this point, or closer to two decades at this point, it was almost outdated from the time that it was implemented. And it just stopped. It stopped keeping up with inflation. It stopped keeping up with the cost of living. And it, technically, if it had kept up with those things, the minimum wage would be upwards of $10 an hour, probably closer to 15, if not more than that, but it didn't. So to just change it now to the dismay of many of the advocates of that would like the minimum wage raised, it would probably have some severe economic ramifications. What those economic ramifications are, I, I don't know. Economics is what economists call a social science. It's not a straightforward science of cold hard numbers like mathematics or physics. 
Um, it's a social science that changes. While some of economics as a science is demonstrable, uh, the outcomes are de demonstrable and objectively true, there isn't quite a straightforward way of being proven that your ideas, economically speaking, are correct. When it comes to this, I do think that the government has a place. It has less of a place than it does right now. And I feel like the, the market, in a sense, has not really been allowed to do its job. And I feel like there is this vastly uh, ridiculous misunderstanding of the concepts of socialism and capitalism. And again, two topics that are so complicated, I'm probably going to need to make a whole another episode on those. Because most of the time when I hear debates from the layman, I've heard some scholars and some more well-educated people debate socialism and capitalism. And sometimes they're throwing around terms and ideas that are far above my head, that are hard to understand sometimes. And I just have a passing interest in a lot of these things. I can only imagine the average individual with no interest in economics that just throws around terms like capitalism because they think that that's what, how the market should work or the democratic socialists of America that like to say we need socialism and nobody seems to really define what those things are, but a lot of times they're told to believe or told what those things are uh, by the news cycle. But I don't think the market doesn't have a place here, especially when the father of the free market argues for paying people a just livable wage. This is a, another quote from Smith from The Wealth of Nations, and this quote dates to the 18th century when the book was published. But I quote, Servants, laborers, and workmen of different kinds make up the far greater part of every greater political society. But what improves the circumstances of the greater part can never be regarded as an inconvenience to the whole. No society can surely be flourishing and happy of which the far greater part of the members are poor and miserable. It is but equity. Besides, that they, that they who feed, clothe, and lodge the whole body of the peoples should have such a share of the produce of their own labors as to themselves tolerably well-fed, clothed, and lodged, unquote. So Smith, who was the father of economics, you know, the demon of the capitalist free market that uh, enslaves and manipulates workers or takes advantage of the hardworking people, he argued that people should be paid their worth in the same way that many socialist ideologists claim that the worker should own the fruits of their labor or be paid fairly. So these ideas aren't so different. Their originators, those being Smith and Marx, were not so different from each other. They may have had differences on the way that workers are treated fairly and workers live the most optimally uh, in accordance with society and culture and the state. And by the state, I mean the government, not a state in the United States of America. Going back to the idea of the living wage, a lot of it has to do with a concept in economics called externalities. These are pros and cons that are byproducts of economic production. Externalities have to do with um, the capabilities of participants in society um, are passed down from parent to children. So essentially, the idea goes that you have the resources that are passed down from you, from your uh, forefathers, forebearers, uh, whoever came before you. And externalities are 
positive and negative. So some people are born into much less fortunate circumstances and nothing is really left for them because their parents squandered what they had or they made poor choices or whatever else and they're born into really poor circumstances. Uh, other people are born into circumstances with a lot uh, and their parents have a lot of resources and time and uh, money to offer them. You know, this is like the single mom with no parents and the high schooler with parents who work sick, both parents who work six figure incomes and have a decent home and all these other things. And this kind of has to do with one of the reasons that the minimum wage as a blunt instrument is not the most effective in its current form. And I will get back to externalities in a second, but the minimum wage wouldn't differentiate between those two individuals. It would not differentiate between the single mother uh, who is barely surviving and barely able to afford living and bills and resources and childcare versus the 17 year old who's just working for a little bit of extra spending money because his parents, you know, they're going to put him through college, we'll pay for your car. But if you want to drive anywhere, you got to pay for your gas. Or if you want to go out with your friends, you got to pay for that. And the 17 the year old high school doesn't really need that money. He wants that money. He or she wants that money. And the minimum wage doesn't differentiate between these two individuals, which is why where the concept of a living wage implemented on an individual basis, especially here in the States, is something to think about and something that might be more effective of an idea and a concept from a, pol a policy perspective and maybe even an economic perspective uh, versus the way that we have implemented the minimum wage via the government in the market. Concerning externalities, this is not straightforward as none of economics is because there are some people who, you know, they're born into poor circumstances and then they do well for themselves. And, you know, they go on to do better than their parents and they do good for their children. I have met people that are given all of the opportunity and resource in the world is and their parents worked very hard to try to provide their children things. And then those children are not grateful for it. And they squander the opportunity that they that was created by their parents. They give them money, they give them their time, they give them whatever they need, and then they just kind of waste it because it's taken for granted. And neither of those circumstances are straightforward. There are many different individuals when it comes to this idea. Concerning externalities, if you have the option and the time, I highly suggest a TED Talk that was done by Corey Ramsey. That's C-O-R-I-R-A-M-S-A-Y. She did a talk on poverty and the power of the living wage. Now, Corey is a Canadian, and while I may not agree with everything she said in the TED Talk, I think much of what she said is relevant, especially the way that first world countries and established countries such as America and Canada tend to uh, ignore the least of these, especially those who might have grown up impoverished to no fault of their own. Corey grew up to a drug-addicted mother. Her and her siblings, her brothers, who she tried to look after, were uh, not taken care of by their mother. They were neglected. They were left alone for days on end. They never had proper health care, clothes, uh, hygiene up until the state came into play and they were fostered out, I think, to their grandparents. And up until she was about 10 or 12 years old, she was never properly fed. She had never had proper hygiene. She'd never been to a dentist. I think she said at the first time she'd been to the dentist, she needed 10 fillings. And it's in this instance that I think the, the state does play a role. And while her story is just one story, there are many stories like hers. 
she's another one of those people that she kind of conflated the minimum wage with the living wage. But I thought that many of the points that she made were still relevant for a discussion like this. So if you have the opportunity, it's only about a, about a 15 minute talk, give or take. I highly suggest you listen to her ideas because I thought they were relevant. Many people wonder if there have been, you know, living wage policies implemented uh, in the modern day. A lot of people say, oh, we've never had something like that implemented in the modern day, which is not necessarily true. There have been forms of living wage policy implemented as far back as 1907 in Australia. As recently as moving into closer to the present day, Bangladesh had extensive living wage implements uh, put into place in its country between 2010 and 2013. The UK started basing their minimum wage in comparison to the American minimum wage uh, starting back in 1909, so prior to the First World War. It went through some significant changes in the 30s after World War II, going up into 1998, and has started to gain even more significance as a concept in 2016, all the way up through 2020. And their wage policies have changed drastically. They've changed even more drastically than the United States. And while I've looked into United Kingdom citizens' opinions on uh, how they think the, the wages and the laws are implemented by their government and how it affects the working class. Uh, they're vastly different. Some people think these things are great. Some people think these things are gonna have negative consequences, but I would rather that, I'd rather something be done by the government or the market or the cooperation of both of them than what we've been stagnated at here in America. Because what we're doing in America right now is clearly not working despite the fact that, in a way, the market is doing what it's supposed to do and the government didn't intervene and a lot of the people that never went back to work, a lot of the workforce is back to work after the SARS pandemic. But even now, there are places that are still hiring. The, the economy has sort of recovered. There are more people working than there were. There isn't as much of a labor shortage as there was about a year ago. But everywhere I go, there are places that still need help, even some of the larger corporate businesses such as Target and Walmart. They're still always looking for help in some capacity, and it doesn't seem to matter how much these companies want to raise wages. A lot of people don't want to come back. They either found other things or they're just not willing to go back regardless of how much money is offered them, which is another reason that I am talking about this idea in this episode right now, because what better time to talk about how we need to examine wages in the market, uh, in culture, and in politics than right now. The worker needs to be acknowledged in a way, and those who are less fortunate acknowledged in a way that we haven't quite done before. And I don't think the solution is as straightforward as pure government intervention and pure market intervention. There's more to this. There's gotta be a way that the private and public sector can work in cohesion to each other to create solutions in a better society. Not utopia. I'm not quite an idealist in that perspective. I don't believe that we will ever achieve utopia. This is sort of my perspective from the Christian worldview that we we live in a fallen world. Man is sinful. Uh, I have issues with socialism and capitalism as ideas and concepts specifically because pure laws is fair capitalism. And many, I while I would agree more with many of the anarcho-capitalists that I follow, I would probably agree with their thoughts more. What I think is not taken into account in something as pure as laissez-faire capitalism, 
which is pure unregulated market capitalism or anarcho-capitalism, as argued by the economist R Murray Rothbard. I don't think these people took into account the inherently selfish nature of mankind. It's the same thing with, it's the same issue I take with many people who argue that, you know, if you just elect the right people and you implement socialist policies or socialized policies that, you know, you just get the right people in there and they'll do the right thing when politicians are shown time and time again with a track record, regardless of where they stand on the political spectrum, especially in American politics, that they're not really going to do the right thing. They're typically only going to do things in their own uh, self-interest. And while I don't believe that all politicians are bad people per se, or evil people per se, or malicious. I do believe that more often than not, when given enough power and influence, you're going to act in your own best interest and not necessarily in the interest of the citizenry because power just tends to corrupt people. So what is the answer to all of this? I, I don't quite know. And even up into, as I said, the modern day, the living wage amongst the people that advocate for it is, is very hard to define because some people, you know, as I said, they think it should be like the certain set of things that you should do or this uh, these amount of resources that should be allotted to you working 40 hours a week with no subsidies from the government. Uh, there are some people that believe it should be more than that. Uh, there are some people that advocate for the living wage that don't believe uh, it should be as much as those things, but they do believe that you should be paid enough to, you know, afford the basics. But again, that's subjective because what the hell is the basics? And this is why this concept is so hard. But from an economic perspective, it has been observed in some regard that the reason that many who advocate for the living wage in America here stateside is because they recognize the bloated nature of the American government and the fact that when the government makes decisions about the workforce, it typically tends to have, typically, not always, typically tends to have negative consequences. And I think they worry just as much as the people on the right side of the political spectrum who they might agree with. But if you advocate a living wage, you're still closer to somewhere on the left side of the spectrum, considering it is a neoliberal idea. It's a neoliberal concept, which means it is inherently left-wing because it is related to classic liberalism, in a sense. Not quite, but in a sense. And it's more related to socialized policy, which would mean that the government needs to intervene in the market in some capacity. But the reason that they don't advocate for minimum wage in America is because they have the same fears that the people on the right side of the political spectrum have. If you increase the minimum wage so drastically, you will affect the cost of everything else. And it's actually been shown in the past couple of years by economists who have studied trends and numbers that when you increase the minimum wage, as some states have, very drastically and not in measured increments like California, it has actually just left the poor behind. Because people in the middle class and the upper class, it affects their wages. And sure, it does affect the more impoverished worker, but the middle class, the upper middle class, and even the upper class of the working force, they have access to resources that even if the cost of everything else went up, they would be able to make maneuvers and change their course and pivot in a way where they would be able to continue to sort of make their way up economically or they could adjust. Well, the people below the poverty line, they didn't have the resources or whatnot to begin with. So increasing 
the wage of everybody across the board, which will then increase the cost of living across the board, isn't really going to help these people because they couldn't afford these things to begin with, and now they're even further behind. And this is one of the reasons I think that there are many people who advocate for a living wage but are against the minimum wage. So economists have studied this behavior, but they have also studied the reason that a living wage as an idea might be more effective. And I, again, this is part of the, the Keynesian school of thought. This is economic economic thoughts and economic sciences, and there are multiple schools of thought concerning economics. But those who argue, argue from the Keynesian perspective, and there has been some evidence in certain studies to show this, that if you were to say implement a concentrated, very direct minimum wage, and there was there was some government intervention, but it was not so hands-on that the market could not do its job. And there have been places in the US where this has happened. But this is a hypothetical example. Here in Pennsylvania, I live with my wife in a middle-class suburb, but just about an hour, if you drive into the city, there are some impoverished inner city neighborhoods where the wages are not keeping up or quite keeping up with the cost of living. Hypothetically speaking, say that the local government here in Pennsylvania, whether that's the Pennsylvania state government or even the Philadelphia city government, uh, decided that they were going to work with the community and pass legislation that would require certain resources to be provided in these specific neighborhoods after examining the cost of resources like childcare, food, housing, and other living expenses, and businesses would then provide those wages and maybe those resources, but not quite the wages, that would increase the quality of workers' lives. And when you do this, you would increase the wages of these people without increasing the cost of living and other resources across the board. On top of this, a lot of people below the poverty line are subsidized with government programs to make up for their lack of income. And there are many people who don't want to be subsidized by these government programs, but they're kind of stuck in this limbo of not being able to quite get it off of government assistance but not being able to, well, wanting to get off of government assistance, but not being able to quite live without it. And so it leaves people in a sticky situation. But if you were to implement something like a living wage legislation in very specific areas, you would increase, you would allow the least for the less fortunate amongst us in society to make their way upwards economically and the middle class who often a lot of our tax dollars go into these subsidizations that go to the working class below the poverty line. So you would actually decrease the tax burden on the middle class. Therefore, you keep more of your paycheck. I'm not saying that that could be implemented correctly. I'm not saying it would even be implemented perfectly. But that is a demonstration of the difference between the living wage, and the minimum wage. To wrap this up a little bit, the living wage is defined as a wage that allows a decent standard of living. It ensures that workers aren't pushed into poverty. The minimum wage is based on the overall economy 
and the living wage implements are based on a living wage implement would be based on multiple factors, though it's not very well defined. Living wage implements are just adjusted for inflation. The minimum wage used to be, but hasn't been adjusted here in America, I mean, as I said, upwards of a decade, and it's inching very uh, closer to two. And it's just sort of a blunt instrument. It hasn't been that effective. There, there needs to be change or reform, regardless of whether you agree with anything I have said in this episode thus far. There needs to be some discussion about this. And I don't think it's as straightforward as these two extremes on the political spectrum screaming back and forth at each other about laissez fair, free, unfettered, free market, or socialism. Because neither of those things are well-defined in political discourse either. Lord forbid we actually try to understand the ideas that we just scream about ad nauseum. So the living wage is not federal, but many cities, then there are cities, and I wish I had some examples of those. Again, you guys are going to have to forgive me. I did so much research for this, and I didn't write everything down, and there's so much that got lost. But there are living wage legislations and policies being implemented in the U.S. right now. So with all of that being said, I think, again, there is there is time, and the time is right now for some discussion on these things. And let's put away the extremes and the 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 nauseating uh, blanket terms and putting people in boxes and this and that and oh it just makes my head spin the amount of debate that goes on concerning this topic but i think this is a good stopping point for this episode i may actually do more uh concerning this idea in a further episode and there will probably be an episode on the minimum wage coming in the future um maybe not necessarily next episode because there's some things that are a little bit more relevant that I have plans for in the upcoming third episode of the House of Bricks podcast. But a couple episodes on economics and the minimum wage is definitely warranted and will be in the works sometime in the future. So wherever you are, whether it's day or night, whether you live in the city, the rural township, however you're listening to this on YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts, thank you so much for tuning in and thank you so much for your time. It does mean the world to me that anybody would listen to my ideas. And again, maybe you thought I was a babbling idiot and maybe you thought I made some great points. And if you think everything I said was right or wrong and you want to fight with me about it or you want to rally behind me and yeah, Aaron, I like everything you said, uh, then I'm glad you're here. Even if you don't agree with what I said, I'm still glad you're here because that's why I'm doing this podcast. Thank you again for joining me. This has been episode two of the House of Bricks podcast. What is a living wage anyway? Thank you for coming to take it apart brick by brick and putting it back together with me. And I will see you all in the next episode. This has been a Brickhouse production. Thank you so much for listening.